Hey everybody, welcome to the X Report. I am Raven X, and alongside me today, I got a true Grizzlies fan, aka a true Titans fan, aka the coolest fan of either team I've ever met. Big E, how you doing today? Stressed, but blessed, and looking a mess. But it's all good. We got a cool show for you guys today. We are going to talk about if Julian Edelman is a Hall of Famer after he announced his retirement earlier this week. We're going to continue in our conversation with some NBA debates, such as, is the media really out to get Kevin Durant? Is Steph really the greatest shooter that God has given us? And most importantly, which team should CP3 fixed? next season and then want to close things out by recapping wrestlemania 37 but before we get to any of that please sure check out the xreport.net i repeat the xreport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our youtube channel entitled the x report so um as always starting things off please be sure you know check out the xreport.net for some good content uh, the 2020 NFL redraft, the NFL draft for 2021 officially starts in two weeks. Very much so excited about that. So be sure to check that out. Of course, my latest mock draft, even though, of course, I'm going to have another one coming out next week. But, you know, it's always good to look back at my thought process of a couple weeks ago. But uh, speaking of the draft, the Cleveland Browns were a team that a lot of people expected to go defense in the first round. Um, one position of need was seen as defensive end. But after a second visit, Davian Clowney ended up signing a one-year, uh, $8 million deal with the Cleveland Browns, which could boost up to $10 million. You had Jadavian Clowney last year, played in eight games for you all, but of course, the injury bug bit him. Do you think that the Browns' defense, well, first off, how much better do you think the Browns' defense is with him in tow? And do you think that they are good at the other defensive end position, or that should they still highlight an edge rusher early? Um, as far as the initial question of how good, though, I think they're all with him there. If he's healthy, he's, he's an improvement because, in my opinion, he's a far better player than anything that they had at their position. It was a fact. Cleveland Browns defense 
Yeah. Um, I agree with you about the improvement, but the the wild thing is, even though Jadavian Clowney is a tremendous run stopper when he's healthy, he is a game changer when he's healthy. You get the point. Like the thing about Jadavian Clowney is, since he was drafted first overall in twenty fourteen, the all question was always it was always an asterisk near his not name about if he was healthy. And that's why it's hard to really get excited about this move. Yes, it could, it's a much cheaper deal than what he was expecting he was going to get last year. So that's a plus. It's a one-year deal, so it's very low risk. But still, on the other hand, it's like, you can't trust your Damian Clowney. And that's something that I think is something to be wary of if I'm the Cleveland Browns. Yes, right now it seems like a solid move, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, wow, the Browns' defense is looking scary. Oh, their defensive line is legit. Let's not do that. One, Miles Garrett is great. I have no qualms about Miles Garrett. But if you look in their interior line, Sheldon Richardson and Malik Jackson are both getting up there in A's. They're solid defensive tackles, but they're nowhere near where they were in their primes. Malik Jackson has bounced around the league quite a bit. Sheldon Richardson is, a, like I said, is a talented player, but he no longer has the excitement that made him a star when he was in um, New York. And then Jadavian Clowney, he's a guy who has the talent, but you don't know if he's healthy. For some teams, it seems like Jadavian Clowney would be a nice fit, and the Browns can be one of them. But it still begs the question of who else is going to give you that pressure? Because like we said, Jadavian Clowney is best known for stopping the run. He was with you guys eight games, did not have a sack. And that is insane for any defensive end commanding the kind of money that he wanted. So I, if I'm the Browns, not just because you don't trust Jadamian Clowney's health, but he's still only on a one-year deal. And let's say he does have a great year. He's going to ask for big money, and you already have a lot of other contracts coming up, whether it be Baker, Denzel Ward, Nick Chubb. And then, not to mention, you just don't really have that much depth at that spot. So if I was them, I'd still look at a defensive end early. I would go linebacker first round. I've been banging that drum, honestly, forever. And so, but second, third round, depending on who's available, I think they should still get a defensive end. I do think that Jadamian provides some um, flexibility there. But, I mean, Tack McKinley is solid, but I still would not be sold at the defensive end position. All right, moving on to offense. Julian Edelman announced his retirement early in the week, which we will get to in a second. But do you think that this means that the Patriots should still target a wide receiver early? They did sign Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne this offseason. They still have Jacoby Myers and Nikhil Harry on the roster. But do you think that they should not be content and still draft a wide receiver within the first two or three rounds? Receiver. 
and like they have other weapons around to where that guy won't necessarily have to come in and be the top receiver. Like they have Nelson Aguilar, they have Kendrick Bourne, and like you can just integrate him and maybe just throw him into the same position of Julian Edelman. Like say, hey, you're going to be our slot receiver. That's that's what I would do. Yeah, I agree. I think you hit it on the head with offensive line and not to mention quarterback. Cam Newton may be signed for this year, but there's no guarantee he's the long-term option. So you, I think you have to hit on that position as well. Defensively, they look solid, but I think that they would be – they'd be in a good position if they were to add another corner. J.C. Jackson, he's a restricted free agent this year. could potentially be gone next year. We're still up in the air about Stephon Gilmore. Those are two pivotal guys to your defense, and without them, you can tell it's a really big blow. So there are a few different directions that they could potentially go um, – besides wide receiver I do see receivers still in their top five needs but it won't be the end of the world if rounds one and two go by and no wide receiver is off of the board at least taken by New England so yeah I think you're you kind of hit on the head with wide receiver being a really good sweet spot uh for the third round all right so one more piece of draft news now on this show we have not talked about the accusations against Deshaun Watson not because we don't know about them. We are well aware of what's happening. However, me personally, and I don't, Ethan, I don't know how, if you feel the same, and if you want to speak on it, you're more than welcome to, but just I don't want to victim blame, and I don't want to crucify a man unless we know for a fact he did it. And because we don't know the fact he did it, we don't know all every piece of information, I just don't want to put my two cents in and – you know, without knowing everything. And so that's why I haven't talked about it. But, I, like, Ethan, this is your opportunity if you want to say something about the Deshaun Watson thing, if you want. I mean, I just, I completely agree. Like, I don't want to victim blame and victim shame these women or I, do I want to bash Deshaun Watson. The only thing that I will say on the issue is this, and we just talked about it off air before, whereas if these accusations about, here are, about him are true, he deserves to face every bit of the justice system that we have because me as a man that's married and things of that nature, I do not um I do not agree with men taking advantage of women in any form or fashion, regardless of status of celebrity or fame as an athlete or financial um place in the world. So I think if it's true he deserves to say he deserves to do the crime, do the time for the crime. And if it's not true, then it should be repercussions for all of those ladies trying to tarnish their man's name. Absolutely, I can't agree with you any more than that. But uh, the reason why we are bringing up Deshaun Watson is we kind of talked about it a week or two ago about Jalen Hurts and the Philadelphia Eagles situation of apparently not feeling completely comfortable with Hurts as their starting quarterback going into 2021, which means that there is some still a potential link between the Watson and the Eagles. Um, Mike Fisher uh, had this to say. Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles are trying to find a di- direction. So are the Houston Texans. And according to the, an NFL source, despite their various issues, the two teams could still get together on a Deshaun Watson trade. Do you think that it will be a good move for the Eagles to trade for Deshaun Watson and essentially just uh, put J- Jalen Hurts on the back burner? Given his his legal history aside right now, 
this as far as the football standpoint, I think it'll be a great move because Deshaun Watson is still young enough to be a quarterback franchise. I mean, to be a franchise's quarterback of the future for the next 10 plus years. And we he's shown that he has the talent level to be a, in my opinion, top 10, maybe top five level quarterback. He led the he led the NFL in passing yards this past season. He was one of the better quarterbacks, even when, even in his rookie year, once he still foot on the field. So I think it would be, in my opinion, I think it would be a good move. And if it gives, he also provides some of the things that I know fans in Philly love. Like, he provides toughness. He's one of the quarterbacks that I, it's been numerous of players where, like, people are converging on him in the pocket. And it's like, how did he get out of it? And, like, that's the type of stuff that can get Philly fans riled up. Because we all know that Philly fans, when they see, when they see stuff that they like, they get hyped. So I think it would be a good move. I agree. I think it would be a great move. Not, like you said, notwithstanding Watson's legal issues. I mean, God forbid everything comes to light and he did do the things he's being accused of. You still have Jalen Hurts in tow. You still have a player who could step in as a starter if need be. Uh, that's worst case. Best case scenario, you get a super you get a Super Bowl caliber quarterback who we've seen in the right situation can lead his team to the playoffs, can be a stud and a top five quarterback in this league. It's just his last organization was terrible. And with some more stability, not saying that the Eagles necessarily have that right now, I think that that still would be a really nice spot for him. It'd be a a new beginning, an opportunity for him to showcase his talents as well as help boost up the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, let's not forget, less than five years ago, they did just win a Super Bowl. And it seems like forever ago, especially seeing with all the turnover that's happened on their roster since then. But I mean, like, I think that, it would be a great move for both sides. I think that in doing that, I would take Deshaun Watson over any other rookie in this class. I, I, you can say what you want about Trevor Lawrence. I don't care. Zach Wilson, don't care. Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Trey Lance. I, it does not matter. If I had the opportunity of trying to trade up and draft one of those guys or take a proven commodity in Deshaun Watson, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but right now at a much cheaper asking price for a trade, I would do it in a heartbeat. It's it's a no-brainer. Um, but all right, so let's talk Super Bowl caliber receivers and players. Julian Edelman earlier this week announced his retirement from the NFL, um, citing repeated knee injuries as the reason for it. And it has begun to stoke a debate about whether or not he is a Hall of Famer. Fans across the nation have chimed in, but even NFL players have given their opinion too. Um, For example, Shady, a.k.a. running back LaShawn McCoy, when asked about Julian Edelman being a Hall of Famer, had this to say. I won't discredit anything from him because I think he's a great player. Plays with a lot of heart, a lot of attitude, a lot of passion. So I don't want to knock on his parade because he's retiring. He's a hell of a player but I don't know about Hall of Fame. So, Ethan, do you think that Julian Edelman is a Hall of Fame-eligible player? Honestly, in my opinion, I do. I don't think that he's a first ballot Hall of Famer because he didn't didn't have the, like, stellar career as far as numbers. But people have to remember that Julian Edelman was a prominent fixture for the New England Patriots dynasty. Yeah. A dynasty that, in fact, I hated so much to the bane of their existence. Super Bowl MVP as well. Yeah, he's on a Super Bowl MVP. I definitely feel like he is, and he's a 
three time champion. Like, yeah. how many wire, especially how many wide receivers can stay the third three, a three time Super Bowl champion? I definitely feel like Julian Edelman is a Super Bowl. I mean, is a Hall of Famer. But like I said, he, I don't think he will be a first ballot. I'm kind of torn because, yes, he was a major fixture for those Super Bowls. That is, that is undeniable. I mean. Tom Brady, just his message that he sent to him over social media about just how much he meant to him, that speaks a lot. I mean, if a guy who is widely considered the greatest quarterback of all time considers you his security blanket, a big reason why he's had so much success, that should carry weight. And, I mean, I think that Julian Edelman is a terrific wide receiver. But when it gets to the Hall of Fame, it's kind of skewed. Like, the NFL Hall of Fame is the most difficult Hall of Fame probably outside of the MLB, to get into. Because while we may be saying, oh, yeah, we definitely think that, you know, he should be a Hall of Famer, there's wide receivers like Heinz Ward and Torrey Holt who aren't in it. And Terrell Owens had to wait several years, more so just because of politics rather than actual ability. So it's like if it was just – if every great wide receiver, impactful wide receiver made it in, I would say yes – but then it begs the question of, do you, is he more worthy of being in the Hall of Fame than a player like a Heinz Ward? If we're talking in the playoffs, I mean, he has better playoff numbers, but in terms of overall impact for the team, you have such a strong argument there. So for me, it's, it's, it's about 50-50. Personally, if he does get in, I, it's definitely not going to be first ballot. He's going to have to wait a while, but – I think that his playoff resume is going to be something that's going to be taken note. Because I believe he's, what, second all-time in playoff yards. I know he's top three in receptions. He's he's in just about every uh, receiving category in the playoffs. I mean, he he's up there, which is, which is remarkable. We talk about winning three Super Bowls, but I mean – to have as many records as he has in the playoffs, I mean, that that's impressive regardless of who you are. So I think that that is going to carry weight. And if not for anything else, I think that may be what gets him in, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. All right, and before we find homes for the top remaining free agents at each position, this is, I feel like this is a much less complicated debate, but it's still a fun one. Devin Hester one of the greatest, if not the greatest, special team returners of all time, said in a recent interview that he feels like he deserves a spot in the Hall of Fame because he did things that nobody else was able to do, and he has some points. He's 16, he had, in his career, he has 16 receiving touchdowns, 14 punt return touchdowns, which is the most ever, five kick return touchdowns, Hall of Fame, all 2000s and all 2010s team, three-time All-Pro, four-time Pro Bowler. Do you think that Devin Hester will ever make the Hall of Fame? I have to say no, but he was a fun man to watch. I'm going to be honest. I don't see him making the Hall of Fame simply because, like, y'all, honestly, they don't have a Hall of Fame slide for special team, for special, for specialists. Like, like you said, he only had 16 receiving touchdowns. That's, like, this guy's... Like Julian, uh, case in point, Julian Edelman, he had he wasn't that big of a target as far as touchdowns, but he had a way larger number of touchdowns than Devin Hester. Right. But if they had a, if they were to finagle a way to like create a space for you know 
teacher retirements, Devin Hester is probably about But given the concept of like the way that the Hall of Fame is now, Devin Hester is not going to make it into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I think that it'd be different if he was a great special teamer in addition to being a great wide receiver. Case in point, Patrick Peterson is one of the most dynamic returners, especially early in his career. However, he was also an all-pro cornerback. That's what's going to get him into the Hall of Fame, not what he did on special teams. Um, Joshua Cribs was a great special teamer for the Browns. However, is that going to get him into the Hall of Fame? Absolutely not, because he was not a great wide receiver. So if he had been great, at wide out and then just did these special things at um on special teams too that'd be one thing but if you're just basing your stats off special teams and you're not a kicker or a punter because i mean hell look how long it took for the first punter to get in it's it's not happening for you Devin. even though Devin hester is easily one of the my favorite players to watch with the ball in their hands especially on special teams that was a bad man and if you don't know anything about Devin hester just look up highlights and have fun bye yeah. oh, i'm sorry go ahead I, was now. Gonna, I also was gonna say if you need to know anything more about the credibility of Devin hester a lot of people don't know these but he is the first and only man that i know of that had a hundred overall speed rating on man and deserve and he looked like he moved that fast too I mean, he did it to my back when I was a Colts fan in the uh, Super Bowl against my main man Peyton. Yeah, he's like that. He is that dude. But all right, so like I said, I teased it a little bit. Let's find some homes for top remaining free agents because it's some pretty notable names out there. And for some positions, it was hard to just pick one guy. But we're going to start at the top with quarterback Alex Smith. Where do you think would be a nice fit for him? Especially now that they don't have his magic, he can come in, he can help to the tour. And honestly, maybe Cincinnati for the same thing with Joe Burrow. I think his playing days are is are well behind him. He can he can step in maybe and do some spot um backup work, but like as far as being a significant contributor to a team. Those days are well behind him, so I think the best thing that he can do now is to serve as a mentor and a guy for a lot of these younger quarterbacks that's in the NFL. I feel that. I'm going to say the Los Angeles Chargers. Reason being, they're another team with a very young quarterback. Tyrod Taylor was brought in to kind of be that bridge quarterback, but then Justin Herbert got on the field um, and won Offensive Rookie of the Year. But right now, Tyrod's gone. They need a backup quarterback. And I think that Alex Smith will be a really nice addition to the team, into the locker room, just to kind of coach him up a little bit and um, give him some more expertise. Running back, Todd Gurley. Huh, this is a – you know what? I was banging this cannon for this team to sign a running back, and I'm still going to bang it. I'm going to set a bunch of bills. Okay. That'd be a good one. I actually said the Tennessee Titans. Just imagine if you said, like, three years ago you have a backfield of Todd Gurley and Derrick Henry. People would think you were insane. But reason being, we know what Derrick Henry is. Derrick Henry is a bad mofo. He is a brick of a man, runs through people with ease. We all know that. However, if you were going to find a hole in his game, you would say receiving out of the backfield. 
Whereas that's a weakness for Derrick Henry, it's a strength for Todd Gurley. And with this extra week being added to the regular season, why not get another talented player on the team who you don't have to overexert for energy and could still be a big playmaker? With um, Derrick Henry still in tow, it's not like you're going to ask a lot of Todd Gurley. He's not going to take a brunt of hits. And so you'll still give your offense another dynamic weapon. And if necessary, you could probably put him out in the slot, especially losing Corey Davis. You can use him as a receiver. I think that would be a really fun duo to watch in Tennessee. But all right, next up, wide receiver Antonio Brown. that um I would add Baltimore into that equation but um in terms of AB I had a team and then I forgot they made a move for another receiver this offseason but I'm gonna say Seattle I mean Russell Wilson wants it they lost David Moore to the Panthers which doesn't seem like a big blow but I mean he was their third wide receiver he made some solid uh plays for them so I do think that if I'll say this AB is not going to join any team he doesn't feel like is at, at the very least playoff caliber I feel like that happens with a lot of players who still feel like they have a lot to prove and they just came off a Super Bowl ring. So, And plus, it's not like a team is going to give him the Brinks truck anymore. So I think that Seattle would be a really nice fit. I think the only problem would be is just, is the front office and the head coaching in a position to where he respects them? Because we can say respects the quarterback, but if you don't respect your coach and your front office, case in point, his time in Oakland, it's not going to work out. So I think that, that how he meshes with um Pete Carroll is going yeah, Pete Carroll is going to be a big role in that. All right, moving on to tight end, Jesse James, formerly of the Detroit Lions. If you want me to go, I can. I'm going to say the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, it's looking like Zach Ertz is going to be traded or released. Um, really, time will tell which one is going to happen first. Um, but right now, they just need more depth at the position. Um, I think that Dallas Goddard has shown that he can be a top tight end. He has shown that potential. He was arguably the best target that they had a season ago. And so I do think that just Jesse James is a reliable receiver. He has nice hands. He's not necessarily explosive, but he gets the job done. And I think that in Philly right now, you just want to be able to add reliable players and then hope to bank on your rookies who are more explosive. All I'm going to say is they reunited my boy Joe Burrow and Thaddeus Moss, who were great together in 2019. So I think I think they're cool. That I, It's kind of funny to me because it was, it was a reunion, but not the reunion 
that uh that we thought we were going to get. But hey, two weeks from now, that may change. All right, moving on to guard Trey Turner. Word. I said Seattle, another team that needs as much offensive line help as you can get. Damian Lewis played well on the uh, at right guard, left guard. Can't really say the same thing. Go ahead and bring in a veteran player, another LSU Tiger. Keep Russell upright. All right, uh, Mitchell Schwartz, right tackle. Mm-hmm. Matt Filer, and they've lost both of their tackles. Alejandro Villanueva is a free agent, and so is Filer. So I will go, go Pittsburgh in it. Yeah, I'm actually in, a, I'm in agreement with you as well. I said Pittsburgh. Just, you need, I mean, if you're going to ride him with Big Ben this season, that's cool, but you got to get him some protection. Uh, Next up, moving to the defensive side of the ball, Geno Atkins. When that's two of the last two, I also have the Cowboys. I mean, their defense, they could they struggled against the run. To be fair, they struggled against everything last year. But Geno Atkins, when he's healthy, is still a very talented player. Arguably top seven defensive tackles in the league. I would go Geno to Dallas. I think that'd be a nice fit, especially because I feel like you can get them relatively cheap. All right, defensive end, Ryan Kerrigan. Well, because they got all those young guys. They got Chase, Jonathan Allen, Montez Sweat. They got a lot of bodies, so I get it. I'm just surprised he's still available. It's him and a few other DNs that I'm shocked yeah. haven't been signed yet. I take Ryan uh, Kerrigan right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that he's one of the most consistent edge rushers. Um, my friend Malik and I had the argument of would I rather have Justin Houston or Ryan Kerrigan. I want to say I went, yeah, I said Kerrigan because Justin Houston, when he is great, he is great. But still, you got to worry about injury concerns. Kerrigan really has never had those problems. But, you know, let's be honest, Baltimore probably not going to sign nobody else until after the draft. So, Mr. Kerrigan, Mr. Houston, if y'all want to come here, you know, Rep the black and gold. I mean, black and purple. You know you know where to find me. I know I messed up. It's fine. We go look past it. All right, inside linebacker, Quan Alexander. Quan Alexander isn't signed yet? Nope. See, it's so many good free agents left. Pittsburgh. And the only reason I say this is because I know um, Devin Bush was hurt, but like they could they could run a two inside backers. Yeah, run a three four. That'd be interesting. 
Um, also, I recognize I forgot to say where I, I would sign uh, Ryan Kerrigan. I said the Los Angeles Chargers. You lost Melvin Ingram. Well, technically you even lost him, but he's still a free agent. But they decided not to bring him back. It's clear that they needed more edge rusher help, and Ryan Kerrigan would provide that. Uh, as for Quan Alexander, I said the Cincinnati Bengals. Linebacker has been a rough spot for the Bengals these last few years. They signed Josh Bonds, hoping it will work out. It really didn't. Drafted two linebackers last year in the draft, and Logan Wilson and Akeem uh, Gazers. And it still has not necessarily matriculated to anything, but time will tell how that works out. I think that with Quan Alexander, you get a veteran presence who, when he is healthy, is a great player. And plus, God forbid, he does get hurt. You still have that depth at the position. All right, outside linebacker, K.J. Wright. You know, that's cool and all, but I said this last year, and I'll say it again. If he want to come to Baltimore, I'm good. Last year showed that he could still play. He could still be a force on at linebacker. I mean, he's a consistently dominating player, even though, of course, with Bobby Wagner there, it's easy for him to get a bit lost in the shuffle, especially with how Jamal Adams, of course, played Um Carlos Dunlap as well. So even though it'd be nice to see him go back to Seattle, if he wanted to come to Baltimore, like I said to Ryan Kerrigan and Justin Houston, you know where to find me. All right, cornerback. Huh? I was going to say, before you get to the next player, I will say KJ Wright had probably the most impressive interception of a linebacker this past season when he had the one-handed on snag against Minnesota. Yes. Oh, that was – man, that was a great game. Yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about, yeah. That was a good. Guy. Okay. Um. Yeah. Cornerback. I was. I was stuck between Casey Hayward and Richard Sherman, but we gotta go with who got the better. We gotta go with the better resume. And I feel like Casey Hayward still has a bit more to offer, but Richard Sherman is the bigger name. So where you got? I can see that. And he's familiar with Robert Sala, was with him for the last couple of years in San Francisco. So that would make sense. Um, I'm going to say the uh, new Las Vegas Raiders, they need cornerback help. They could use a veteran at the position in hell. If necessary, you can put him out at safety. I think he could potentially play the role that uh, LaMarcus Joyner played for them last year before he moved on. Um, so, yeah, I think that that would be a solid fit. Plus, he's spoken highly about their organization, gets to stay on the West Coast. So, there's that. All right, final player, safety Malik Hooker. Um, is he a strong or a free? Uh, I want to say free. Being honest, I don't care. The Tennessee Titans. Because <laughs> we, we, we still have Kevin Bayard. He had a, a quote-unquote down year last year, but he led the team in tackles. But he, I think because he's been such a ball hawk in previous seasons, That would be a good fit. I mean, Malik Hooker, unfortunately, like most cats, he's a good player. He just has a hard time staying healthy. Um, a player, so I had him I had him linked to a few teams, but I think the Detroit Lions would be a good fit. 
their secondary right now will take all the help that it can get. Um, Desmond Trufant is gone. Um, I think right now Amari O is technically their best safety. So they they need some help. And I think that him going there, if he can be healthy, I think that he could be a really solid and underrated addition. Close, very close second was the Cowboys, just because who the Cowboys secondary. All right. Exactly. All right, let's talk some NBA. But first, just a reminder for everybody that the WNBA draft starts tonight at 6 p.m. Central Time. So as soon as we get done recording this, I'm going to be in draft mode, and I am excited. So, yeah, show some love to the women hoopers. Check it out. But, all right, so let's go ahead and talk our takeaways of the week. Ethan, what shocked you or was informative to you this past week of action? got the returning Joel Embiid showing why before he went out he was the leading candidate for MVP just been having stellar performances in the last week of action most recently dropped 39 and 13 against the Nets last year you can I mean last night you can say what you want about the Nets being shorthanded whatever Joel Embiid absolutely dominated in the way that Kobe would so I got uh Joel Yeah, he did. And that DeAndre Jordan don't get sunned often. Or at least there's not many people. His all right, I'll tell you that. It's not many people that make him look small these days. Yeah, because I was gonna say typically the way that DeAndre Jordan gets cooked by other players is if he's facing bees that have like jumpers. Joel yes, Joel and B has the jumper, but Joel and B also just straight up was like, Hey, give me the rock, I'm gonna back this guy down and I'm gonna score in the paint. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. All right, let's look at the West. I know this one is going to be a little bit raw for you, but I can't go anywhere but Luka Doncic. I mean, I mean, if you're going to be a mom, but you got to come up in the clutch, and he did that against the Grizzlies last night, made an improbable floater three, which I still don't understand how he made that. Beautiful shot. Then, of course, he had um, a great game against Philly, 32, 4-4, 4-4, 29. Really just looking like a great player, even though I think that it was a, a lot of pressure on him early in the year to win MVP. I think that even though he's not necessarily in that conversation, he's still been a big leader for his team, and this is a case, prime case of it. Sometimes luck is a skill. But uh, I'm definitely going to have to go with 
Nikola Jokic. Like, this man has repeatedly throughout the course of the season and this past week put up ridiculous numbers. Like, he's averaging 26, 10, and 8. And because of the injuries to Joel Embiid and LeBron James, in my opinion, I think Nikola Jokic is going to win MVP this year. Do you think that there's any way that uh, MB can overcome him, or do you think that it's too it's a, he missed too much time? I think he missed too much time because I think if I'm not mistaken, I read an article unless Joel Embiid just dominates for like these next week. But I think I read an article that said that it, the voting for MVP is going to end starting in this coming this coming week. Oh, okay. So if that's the case, I think because of the fact that, like, if Joel Embiid had to stay healthy and he was doing the things that he's been doing and doing since he came back, he would probably be a shoe-in. But because he's missed so much time, and like I said, Nicole Young has been otherworldly, he's going to win MVP. Fair enough. All right, our Rookie Mamba of the Week. Can't really go in any other direction. It's going to Anthony Edwards. Continuously been balling out. I mean, his shot percentage isn't necessarily the prettiest. It's funny because he did not know who the new owner of his team was, and he actually has a recognizable new owner. But Ant is always good for a laugh, and he's good for a lot of points. So I'm going Ant with my mom of the week. Yeah, at this point, it's really hard to go with anybody else because yeah. all the other rookies that can really compete for this, they're injured. Yeah. Therese Halliburton, he's a good player, but he, he Anthony Edwards is far better than him right now. Yeah, he gets more opportunities too. So, yeah. all right, so let's go ahead and look at the current playoff picture because this season, as compressed as it is, it's pretty going. It's going by pretty fast. The playoffs feel like they are right around the corner. So let's start out the East. Philadelphia 76ers sitting at the one seed. Then we got Brooklyn Nets, Milwaukee Bucks, Atlanta Hawks, Boston Celtics, New York Knicks, Miami Heat. Charlotte Hornets holding on to that A seed. And then right behind them, you have the Indiana Pacers, who are a game back. And then the next close is the Chicago Bulls, who are four, I mean, five games back. So, are there any surprises for you looking at the Eastern playoff picture? Any teams out of the playoffs right now that you think are going to make a late season surge? Or do you think we are about set? Yeah, right now they are six games back of the Hornets. But I think that, like you said, I mean, Russ has really been on a tear this year. Uh, Bradley Beal, when he's healthy, I mean, we've seen as they're getting more acclimated to each other in their roles, they're starting to play better. So I, I think that that could be a possibility. Um, I think that the Pacers aren't going to go out without a fight. I know they are going to be a tough And Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we look at it a week from now and then they supplant the Hornets for that eighth seed. But, yeah, it's it's going to come down to the wire for those last few seeds um, in the East. As far as um, up top, I'm, I'm surprised by the Hawks. But, I mean, I think I saw a stat that this month they had, what, the third best record in the league, I think 15-6. They've been playing lights out, which, of course, this is the perfect time to start doing that. Really been rising themselves as well as the Celtics. But I think I wouldn't be surprised if the Hawks kind of hit a bit of a wall as the season winds down. But we'll see. All right, let's look out in the West. 
number one seed, the Utah Jazz. Two, Phoenix Suns. Three, Los Angeles Clippers. Four, Denver Broncos. Five, Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, six, you have the Portland Trailblazers. Seven, Dallas Mavericks. Eight, Memphis Grizzlies. And at nine, uh, just a game back, the Golden State Warriors. Anything surprising you, teams, you feel like going to creep in, or are we set? Uh, I think the AC is going to be a battle between the Memphis Grizzlies, the Golden State Warriors, and the New Orleans Pelicans. It's going to be very, in my opinion, it's going to be very reminiscent of last season of the New Orleans Pelicans, the Portland Trailblazers, and the Memphis Grizzlies. And it's going to boil down to uh, in my opinion, a great playing game. I honestly will personally say if the Grizzlies make it into this scenario, I want to play Golden State. And the reason I say this is not because I think that we're a better team than Golden State, but for whatever reason, the New Orleans Pelicans kick the Grizzlies butt every yeah. game they play. So I would very much rather play Golden State than New Orleans. Speaking of that play-in, a couple of teams, well, not a team that has been kind of talked about potentially in that spot are the seven-seed Dallas Mavericks, who both Luka Doncic, star player, and team owner Mark Cuban have spoken out about it. Uh, Doncic said this, you play 7-2 games to get into the playoffs, then maybe you lose two in a row and you're out of the playoffs. So I don't see the point of that. Mark Cuban added to that in saying, the worst part of this approach is that it doubles the stress of the compressed schedule. In hindsight, this approach was an enormous mistake. Do you agree that the play-in is a bad idea, or do you feel like they are just stressed and just don't want to put themselves in that position? I think it's a little bit of both. And the reason I think, I'll go with the reason why I think it is a bad idea because it does make sense. Like, you play the regular season to get to the standings. Why are the standings at risk for being taken away after just playing one to two games in a season? I mean, in a play-in scenario. But it's also, in my opinion, it's like it creates some buzz around it. Kind of like, I know, I don't know how much baseball, how big of a baseball fan you are, but in baseball, they have a wild card game to get the final spot in the playoffs. And it's a huge game. And it's a big part of the season now. So it's like it creates a similar buzz for the NBA. So it can bring more fans and it can bring a whole lot of viewership to the game. So. In my opinion, it has these pros and these cons to it. I don't necessarily think it's bad or good. I'm just I'm just a basketball fan, so I love it regardless. Um, I definitely understand where they're coming from. I mean, because especially in a season like this, where it is, like you said, compressed, where it is a pretty stressful situation to be with, it's it's tough. It is tough to have to and let's say you work, you bite, you fight, you claw your way to that eighth seed. It was like, oh, well, technically you don't have it yet. You got to do this, this, and that. That's a lot more pressure. And though, even though we look at these guys and they are professionals and we think, hey, they're supposed to be ready to handle this, this past year has been one of the most unprecedented, unpredictable, craziest years in the history of the world. So it's just a lot to ask out of these guys. But like you said, I mean, from a business standpoint, it's a great idea because it creates more buzz. Usually when we saw the last teams, you know, who made it into the playoffs, it was like, oh, well, they're just going to get knocked out early or it's just kind of a foregone conclusion. But now you're seeing how hard these teams are fighting to make the playoffs. It makes more makes their games against the first or second seed 
even more entertaining because it's like you saw them fight to get there. Now what are they going to do? We saw with the Trailblazers last year, and I could see the same thing kind of happening this year. So I don't hate it. I, I do, like you said, it has its pros and its cons, but as a player, I can definitely understand why they wouldn't be a fan of it. But all right, so let's look at some recent injuries. Uh, first of which, James Wiseman, rookie center for the Golden State Warriors, unfortunately is going to be out for the rest of the year after tearing his uh, after a torn meniscus in his knee. And then Jamal Murray, probably the darling of the NBA bubble, is out for the rest of the year with a torn ACL. Uh, GMs and coaches around the league have expressed their displeasure with the season, especially with how many injuries have taken place. And even one anonymous assistant coach said this, hands down, it's the worst schedule I've seen in 25 years in the league. It's utterly insane. Do you believe they're trying to rush an NBA season to and compress things was a bad idea on Adam Silver's part. Um, yes, because the, real, the realization of it is, is, like, take, and for instance, this second half of the season, like, I'm a Grizzlies fan, and the Grizzlies had 40, had 40 when the All-Star break ended, the Grizzlies had 40 games left to finish playing. But some of it was because of COVID protocol. They had COVID, bouts of COVID, and they mentioned. But it's like you have these situations where you're playing four games in five, five or six nights. And typically, like the way that the schedule was in a pre, in a pre-COVID is, you probably would play three games in five nights, or three games in six nights, or three games in a week. So it's like you asking these players to play more games in a back-to-back situation and try to also get them to recover in a condensed time period. I think as far as the player standpoint, it's a bad thing. It's a, it's a, it's just been a horrible situation because it's like you're asking those people's body, especially teams that have like older players, like say the Lakers. Like, yeah, I was going to say like say the Lakers or the Nets. You know, yeah, like these guys, they have a bunch of veterans on those teams. And you're asking them to play more games back to back, then trying to expect, then expecting them to for their bodies to recover at the same at the same pace of a um, pre-COVID season. Like it's it's nearly impossible. I mean, Jamal Murray, he's a young dude, and he tore his ACL. James Wiseman, he's a young kid, he's a rookie, he tore his ACL. Right. So I think in, in that sense, it's a bad. It's been a bad idea. Yeah, I think so, too. And I understand what Adam Silver was trying to do. He was trying to get the season back on schedule and not push it back to this upcoming summer, which, I mean, I guess I understand to try to bring back the continuity. But it was just we we figured it was going to be crazy when they only had let they had what, two months of an offseason. And then it's leave the bubble. You get a couple minutes of downtime, the draft, free agency. All right, the season's back. So it was just such a compressed off season and then just expecting people to get their bodies back in order to be going not only a regular NBA schedule, but a hectic one where it's back to backs. Like you said, you're trying to fit in 72 games in just a few months. It's a lot for anybody, regardless of their age. So I think it is showing that this season was, was not Adam Silver's best idea. And he has, he's been a great commissioner since taking over, but this one, I think this just kind of shows why having a full off season and being able to have these games spread out so much is so important. 
But uh, let's talk about other things that are important, and that is health. And that is why LaMarcus Aldridge decided to retire today in a shocking piece of news. Um, he announced his retirement um, earlier today, and I'm not going to read the full newsletter, but it potentially was like, today I write this letter with a heavy heart. My last game, I played while dealing with an irregular heartbeat. Later on that night, my rhythm got even worse, which really worried me even more. And he ended it with, you never know when something you will will come to an end. So make sure you enjoy it every day. I can truly say I did just that. So first things first, do you think that his impromptu retirement is going to have a big deal on the Nets? And do are you in agreement in agreement with Dirty Dame who says his retire his jersey should be retired in Portland? He just got there and played five you know, games, like, right? I think it was just five. He played, he played five games, and being honest, Lamarcus Aldridge, he's amazing on the offensive end, but on the defensive end, he could be a bit of a, a liability. Like he's one of those guys. He's a he's a um, a traditional old school big to where it's like you can put him in a pick and roll, especially with the athletes in today's NBA. He can be ran off the court, yeah, because he can't keep up with these guys. So I don't think I don't think he would be missed as far as that, and as far as the whole Portland thing, his number definitely has to be retired in Portland because he did some amazing things in the franchise. Yeah, um, I'm in agreement with you on both accounts. Yeah, I don't think the Nets are really going to be that hurt by it. He was only there for a few games. His presence provided depth. But I don't think that them getting Lamarcus Aldridge was like, yes, this is going to definitely make them a championship team. It just provided some solid veteran depth. Um, but in terms of Portland, absolutely had some of his best career moments in Portland. It sucked watching him leave Portland. That was one of, even though I was never a Trailblazers fan, it was it sucked to see him don in another jersey just because I enjoyed watching him and Dane play together. And, I mean, even when he got bought out, we were talking about how we would like to see him back in Portland as one of those teams. So, yeah, I think that with his overall impact, and let's be honest, Portland's has had some fine players in its history. Of course, Clyde Drexler is one of the first to come to mind. But if we're talking the turn of the century, I think guys who really should who stick out are Dame, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Brandon Roy. And CJ McCollum, yeah. But, yeah, so I would say that those cats are definitely – I could see all of those guys at some point getting their jersey retired. But, I mean, with the timeliness of everything, I would be shocked – if um, LaMarcus Aldridge did not have his jersey retired at least by the end of the year. But you made mention about playing an old-school kind of game. Well, another player who plays that way is Draymond Green, who in a re- recently on his podcast had Kevin Durant on the show, and he made some comments about the current NBA players. Well, not current, but younger NBA players, where he said, these young guys soft as hell. I found myself trying to trash talks. Um, yeah, trying to talk shit to some of these young dudes that won't talk and they're trying to be a friend. Do you agree that this young, the younger class, the younger group of NBA players are getting soft? I don't think they're getting soft. It's just they're not going to, they're different. Like they, they might talk trash, but they're also just the type of cats that they just don't engage in it. Like, Draymond has to realize that, like, you know, a lot of those guys, they grew up and he, they're, they're their role models. Right. And it's like they, well, especially when they try to get in the NBA, they probably get a starship. 
starstruck. And, I mean, I don't think, I feel like you can't name him in soft. Because in my personal opinion, Drake, Draymond could be called soft. Because, like, yes, in today's NBA, he's been enforcing, he's been the tough guy. But what would Draymond look like in the early 2000s? What would Draymond right. look like in the, in the late 90s? Like, Draymond might not even be the same Draymond. So it's hard to talk about certain groups of people because, in my opinion, John Morant, he's a young cat, but he don't talk shit to anybody. Right. Like, he talked shit to James Harden the year he won, right after he won MVP. So it's just one of them things where it's like, you know, it's different. Like, it, everybody's different. You can't just say somebody's soft because it's like, Kawhi Leonard doesn't talk trash, but are you going to say Kawhi Leonard's soft? No. Probably not. So. Yeah, I I hear you on that. I mean, because let's be honest, probably every previous generation of basketball players thinks that the next generation is soft. Kobe and Cook thought that this generation that Draymond and others are coming into were soft. Draymond is saying the same thing. I'm sure MJ and Dennis Rodman and Isaiah Thomas's they thought that the next generation that, you know, Kobe and AI were a part of were soft. And because I think that a big part of it is just the rules of the game are changing. More things are being called as fouls. Players can touch each other less. They're not allowed to really get engaged verbally or physically with each other anymore. Whereas we saw in the 90s, early 2000s, we just see full-out fights break out. And not saying that they don't fully happen now, but it's way it happens way less because texts are thrown more. Like It gets shut down before it really gets to those points. So I, I don't think it's fair to say that these newer generation of players is soft. If anything, you can say that the NBA is getting more soft to where how much how many more fouls they're calling or how just about anything is a tech. But I don't think it's fair to just assume that all these young guys are soft just because they don't want to trash talk you. They might be trying to be respectful or they just might not care enough. They might just be trying to handle their business. And they know you're just trying to get into their head. So why why deal with it? But speaking of soft, I don't think any player has been called soft more in the last in the last decade than Kevin Durant, who has been a subject of both media love and criticism since deciding to leave Oklahoma City for the Golden State Warriors. Flash forward a few years and he is still a big topic of conversation. I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna completely read through everything between his Twitter beef with he and uh, Shannon Sharp, but let's just say that it came down to Shannon Sharp misquoted him, or he no, he read a quote that was fake, um, that he, Kevin Durant didn't say on live television and said it as fact. Kevin Durant called him out on it, and Shannon Sharp was like, "Well, we can talk about it in person." Blah blah blah. In the end, Shannon Sharp block Kevin Durant so do you think that this is just another sign that Kevin Durant the media is kind of out to get him or paint him out as a villain or do you think that it was just misinformation and it's being blown out of proportion I honestly think it's blown out of proportion because I mean the thing of it is, is okay Shannon Sharp misquoted you and he missed he read something that it was thought as fake and it wasn't fake but you you didn't, A, all you had to do was say, I didn't say it, and left it alone. And the thing of it is, is Shannon Sharp, he's smart enough. And for one, in my personal opinion, Kevin Durant is dumb for doing this because he just got revealed 
with Michael Rappaport. Right. Even though he's pushing 50, that man is whoa. He looked like he could step on the field today and make plays. I think that you make a really good point about that just because, I mean, he, we saw this when he first went to the Warriors, how he would be quick to get into confrontations. For example, with Boogie, he knew good and well, he didn't want a problem with Boogie, but he wanted to look tough. He wanted to show that he wasn't a cupcake. He wasn't soft. But in reality, it's like, dude, like you're not a tough guy. And that's okay. You don't have to be a tough guy. But I feel like because he's been called soft and cupcake and a snake for these past several years, now he just feels like any time that he has to flex his masculinity, he has to flex his gangster, he's going to do it. But in reality, it's like you're not really going to try to talk to me. Like you said, Shannon is an OG. Shannon is a grown man. He's not like cats nowadays who are just going to be going back and forth with you for hours on social media. Like, I'm not going to do that with you because in the end, he'd rather talk about it in person. So if anything, it's we just saw what happened with Paul Pierce getting fired. I'm not about to lose my job for you. I'm not going to just publicly go off on you on social media and then just expect to have a job. Like, it, it does not work that way. So, no, nah, I think that um, I think he handled it well. I don't really think that KD – I don't think the media is out to KD. I feel like KD likes to overblow things and that puts a target on his back. And because he is so quick to get hostile as opposed to be like, yeah, I didn't say that, it, it definitely changed things. But all right, let's get to another mini debate. After Steph Curry just balled out earlier this past week and overcame uh, Wilt Chamberlain's Warriors franchise scoring record, 
Stephen A. Smith had to say this shortly thereafter and said, the greatest shooter to ever walk the planet Earth, the greatest shooter that God ever created. And speaking of Steph Curry, are you in agreement that Steph is the greatest shooter of all time? Yep, I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, Steph does it all. And I mean, I won't call him the greatest point guard of all time, but I will say he is the greatest shooter. I mean, range on range on range. I mean, his range really helped to reshape basketball. I mean, his ability to shoot was kind of the forepoint, forefront of like the three-point era becoming the prominent part of the game. He's definitely an, a major influence on it. So, yeah, I, I would agree he's the greatest shooter of all time. All right, so closing out our uh, NBA talk, let's talk about Chris Paul, who it's, I mean, everything he touches turns to gold, apparently. All right, uh, in a recent tweet um, that has started to really build up some circulation, it said Chris Paul should jump around to rescue a different NBA franchise each season, like Gordon Ramsay showing up to turn around a failing restaurant, hardwood nightmare. So that got me to thinking. Let's, we've seen it, it has historically happened when he was with the Hornets, it boosted their team winning percentage, the Clippers, the Rockets, the Thunder, and now the Suns. So, Ethan, next season, of course, it's not going to happen, but what team do you want to see Chris Paul with so he could fix them? That is a great option. But you you kind of talk about a team that had pieces in place. And, like, we, we talked about it last week that where, like, maybe in a couple years they could actually be a playoff team. But I want if I want to watch this show, if I want to watch him do it, I want him to go to the grimiest, the gutter buddies, the, the, the trash of the trash. And it has to be the Minnesota Timberwolves. Like, I'm not saying he's got to make them a championship team, but I want to see him fix the Timberwolves. Because I feel like if you kid him, you can still find, of course, if I do this, you can still keep Cat, maybe move D'Lo. You still got Anna shooting guard. Malik Beasley, if he can keep his head on straight, I think it'd be cool. I think it, 
I'm not saying, like I said, I don't think he would magically make them a playoff team or a, you know, a championship contender. But if you're going to have him fix a team, this is the ultimate test. This will truly test how good are you at fixing teams. Of course, nobody is, like, really expecting him to, like, fix every team. But it definitely will make it a lot of fun. But, all right, let's do our uh, nightly game predictions for tonight, April 15th, 2021. So, starting with the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Atlanta Hawks, it's looking like Giannis Antetokounmpo is going to be available tonight. So, that will be exciting. I got Bucks. I got Bucks. All right. Uh, Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. I got Warriors. I got Warriors. Uh, Sacramento Kings taking on the Phoenix Suns. I got Suns. And last but not least, the Boston Celtics versus the Los Angeles Lakers, who are hosting fans for the first time this season. I think that having fans is going to be great, but I still got Celtics. Yeah, I got Celtics. All right, let's talk WWE. All right, guys, just like we did with NXT TakeOver Stand and Deliver, here are the recaps for WrestleMania 37 Nights 1 and two starting with night one bobby lashley retains after putting drew mcintyre to sleep natalia and tamina win the tag team turmoil match cesaro has the real spinneroni and defeats seth rollins almost and aj styles become the new tag team champs after almost shows what he has to offer in the ring braun Strowman wins uh damian priest and bad bunny win with bunny having a great debut and to cap things off Bianca Belair overcomes Sasha Banks and wins her first ever women's championship. All right, moving on to night two. Randy Orton wins despite a surprising distraction from Alexa Bliss. Despite the bitch, bitch, oh my gosh, the bitch slap heard around the world, Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler retain the women's tag team championships. Uh, Kevin Owens wins and stunners whoever the hell Logan Paul is. Sheamus is the new U.S. champion for whatever reason. Apollo Crews is the new IC champ after getting assistance from a former underground guy. Uh, Rhea Ripley gets her main event moment um, and is the new Raw Women's Champion. And finally, we will all acknowledge him, Roman Reigns, as our tribal chief after he defeats both Daniel Bryan and Edge at the same time to be our universal champ. Overall, I went 5-14. and 14. Night two really kicked my butt, but it's all good. Uh, my favorite match, not that surprising, was the SmackDown Women's Championship match. I think that it was a very well-paced match. Um, and I think that it was one of the better main events we've had in recent m- memory. I mean, Bianca put forth the stellar performance. I think that she really showed that she was ready for the moment. It was a very emotional match, too. Sasha Banks, we all know just how great she is. So it was just a beautiful moment to see two black women main event mania in my opinion probably have the best match of the weekend especially as a black woman representation matters so it was really beautiful to see them have such a great moment together and a tremendous match um my favorite moment i have it's a tie one was bianca belair whipping sasha it's very rare that she does the whip these days so when she busted out with one of the loudest whip cracks I have heard in forever, 
it was pretty freaking irritating. And then a very close, close option was JBL being offended that Corey Graves called Maggle Cole his best friend. The fact it was, it's always great having him on pie. Uh, commentary especially when he's a heel and so just hearing him give Michael Cole crap is always just a great moment um in terms of who increased stock I would say the fans I mean this was the first show in over a year where fans were in attendance and it just it was a beautiful thing to see how the wrestlers reacted to them as well as just Things aren't back to normal, but it just showed how amazing wrestling can be because when they do it for the fans rather than just, you know, boards of people's faces, but authentic fans is very few things in the business better than that. Decrease stock, I would say The Fiend. I know that his character not necessarily matters when it comes to wins and losses, but it's still like he's still supposed to be this ultra dominant force, this this you know supernova this 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 crazy creative figure and yet he lost to one RKO it doesn't really make sense i'm i'm not sure really where the direction of that is going um moving on to my one booking decision i would have had Matt Riddle retained his U.S. title i understand why they gave it to Sheamus in the sense of he's been churning out great performances for the last couple of months. And I think that in giving him this title, I think it'll give him more reasons to be on TV. Personally, I preferred Riddle, but I mean, it's it's a change. And I think it'll be cool. I'm interested to see how what storylines come from it, um, especially because, let's be honest, Sheamus wasn't going to win the WWE Championship, so at least he got something. Uh, my WTF moment, guess I had a couple, but this one literally made me say WTF, and that was seeing Alexa Bliss come from the top of the Jack in the Box with her crown dripping black goo. That was, um, that was interesting. I liked it just from, like, the weird aspect, but it was still just like, okay. And then capping things off, my show grade was a B minus. Honestly, I love night one, uh, I thought that night one overall had some really great moments. Of course, uh, Bobby retaining the the great performance of Bad Bunny. Of course, Bianca almost really showing out. So I overall gave that a B. And then with regards to night two, I gave that one. It felt like a little generous, but I gave it a C. I think that night one really kind of carried the weekend. And so because of those two grades, they met in the middle. And I decided to give it a uh B minus. I know Mania is kind of give him a little bit of a break just because everything that was really going on, the excitement for fans. But overall, I feel like night two kind of disappointed. But all in all, I think that it was a solid weekend and just excited to see where when uh, fans will be able to come back. But yeah, that is our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, please be sure to check out theexport.net. I repeat, theexport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our YouTube channel entitled The X Report. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you all next time.